Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to remember Eleanor Ostrom, uh, the longtime Indiana University professor, won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2009, and she died earlier this week. We have three guests with us in the studio. Uh, Gwen Arnold is here. She is public policy Ph.D. candidate and a student in the uh, Ostrom Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis. Ted Carmines is with us, uh, the Warner O. Chapman Professor and Rudy Professor of Political Science at Indiana University Bloomington. And Jimmy Walker is with us. He's a professor of economics and affiliated and affiliated faculty of the Ostrom Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis and a friend and colleague of Lynn Ostrom for 25 years. If you want to join us on the program, you can phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. And the web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. So welcome. Hi, Bob. Hey, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, it's good to be to here. everybody. Ted, thanks. good to have you back on the yeah. show. No, nice to be back. All right. Well, this is a, sort of a bittersweet week because of the, the mm-hmm. death of, of Eleanor Ostrom, who everybody called Lynn, mm-hmm. everybody who knew her. Um, so I, I want to... I guess just sort of kick off the program by asking about this, uh, you know, her, this amazing woman who, for most of us who didn't know her, didn't work with her for 25 years, sort of burst on the scene in 2009. <laughs> and, you know, now, you know, it, it seems like such a short ride that we got to know her uh, really, really well. So, you know, for those of us who just sort of were introduced to her in 2009, were you surprised when she actually won this amazing honor, the the Nobel Prize. Jimmy, you've known her a long time. Um, there's always a surprise because it really it, it comes from nowhere. It comes from left field, and people really don't know. I knew that Lynn's name had been mentioned, as, and I think this usually happens. It could be uh, former winners of the prize. That there, there are nominations. There are groups of people who can nominate, but I think it's former winners and maybe people within the Swedish Academy. But I, I knew her name had been mentioned, and this had been brought up to me when I would be at meetings and things like that. But it's such a big prize that, no, you never really know. Uh-huh. And uh, I think I really truly believe Lynn was shocked that morning that she, she got the call. Uh-huh. I thought the funny thing about it was that um, Lynn had commented that she was asleep when she got the call, and that it was 6.30 in the morning, and uh-huh. that's it's incredibly unusual for Lynn uh, because it, we joke that we're all used to getting emails from Lynn at four in the morning and things like that. Well, it, it ends up that Lynn had been up at two or three in the morning doing emails and she'd gone back to bed. So okay. that particular mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. Ted? No, I, I mean, I was surprised a bit, but not totally. Uh, her name had been kicked around quite a bit. Uh, in the last oh, decade or so. And I remember when Tom Schilling was here giving a talk, and he had won the Nobel Prize in economics, and when he uh, gave a talk at the workshop, and he mentioned during his talk that uh, uh, not only uh, did he be great supportive of Lenz in terms of getting the prize, but he thought there was a real chance she might get it. Now, you know, no one mm-hmm. can know about these things, but I think even though her work was unconventional in some ways for mainstream economics, I think that there was always a chance that she'd get it, but who knows about the probability of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was awfully nice when it happened. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Gwen, how long have you known her? Uh, Or no, Gwen. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, I started here in 2006, and I came Uh here because of Lynn. Uh Oh, you did? Yeah. And what was was the draw? Why did you uh, decide you wanted to work with her? I was an under... I did my undergrad in political science at Michigan, and I did a thesis 
for, for my degree. And I studied small inland lakes in Michigan as common pool resources. And I just kept coming across this name, like Ostrom, Ostrom. I didn't know, I didn't know anything <laughs> mm-hmm. about her except I just kept reading all of her stuff. And at that point, I, I think I'd been studying international relations, and I wasn't really sure if I liked political science that much, even though it had been what I was studying. And then I realized that she was a political scientist. You could be a political scientist and study this really cool, exciting stuff. So, I mean, I worked for a couple of years in D.C., but I always wanted to go back to school. And uh-huh. folks said, well, if, if this is what you want to study, if you want to study common pool resources and how people manage them, you go work with Lynn. Yeah. So, well, so, so can each of you or, or one of you uh, take it upon yourselves to sort of for, to, for our listeners, give them sort of a thumbnail version of some of Lynn's theories and what she believed? Because I know I, – I think when I first heard about her, somebody said, oh, well, you know, the tragedy of the commons, that's like totally opposite from what she believes. You know, Chad? Uh, yes. I mean, I think she – they. there's a lot of history to this. But I think finally oh, what she became interested in – and it was really late in Vincent's work, early work actually as a graduate student in his uh, first part of his career was – how do you deal with these situations where uh, it's not clear that the pure market can is the most efficient way to deal with them, and it's not clear at all that government ought to be the way to deal with them? So they became these common pool resource problems, and there's lots of them around the world, you know, about how you deal with lakes and how you deal with forests and how do you deal uh, with streams and so forth and so on. And they kind of lie in between. And uh, when she first looked at this, she was amazed to see that there's lots of different disciplines that had looked at this, but none of them talked to each other. They talked past each other. So I think one of the things that brought her into it is how can we really focus on these diverse settings where you have these common pool resources, and how do you think about how they're managed well, usually by the uh, stakeholders, uh, and sometimes, of course, they found they were managed ma- badly. And so she took it upon herself to focus in on what were the constellation of factors that led to a good management of these and what led to inadequate management. And that really, to me, became the uh, the kind of key way in which she focused on uh, this kind of intermediate set of problems. Mm-hmm. Gwen, from your, uh, you know, your, your attraction to actually coming here to study with her, or, what were some of the, of the principles and, and concepts that made you think, okay, this is a person I really want to learn from? Well, initially it was, it was just that I wanted to study water, and I knew that she had done a lot of work on, on water resources as, as common pool resources and how to manage them. Mm-hmm. But then when I got here, you know, you, you don't always end up sticking with the with the advisor that that you came in for. But I, I knew that I wanted to work with her because she put so much emphasis on, okay, this is the problem. You need to go there to understand the problem. So it's it's not enough to sit in your office and try to think about what might be the solution. You need to go and meet the stakeholders, work with them, talk to them, understand how they think and how how they feel and how they make decisions. Because only then can you effectively help them learn how to create solutions and, and manage their resources better. So mm-hmm. once I realized that this is how she approached her work, and, and it aligns so much with how I wanted to approach my work and my scholarship, I knew that this was the right relationship for me in terms of having a mentor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jimmy? Yeah, I would um, I'd, I'd pick up on where Gwen sort of left off. If, if I think back at Lynn's work... Um, if you really go back to sort of the 1950s and early 60s, um, these these issues of types of goods and which leads to common pool resources and those, the issues that come along with that those sorts of property rights, they were being discussed. They were being discussed by quite a few academics, uh, sort of the the border between economics and political science, I would say. And I think really what Lynn did that, uh, and she did it all through her career, it, she really did go to the field and. Uh, and and she she dealt with she wanted to deal with these complex situations in a way that you could really start to understand how what's the process that these individuals are using to manage their commons mm-hmm. and she had this energy and this focus and as 
as she would often talk about, this stubbornness to, uh, to pursue these. And as she did this, um, to be honest, she sort of carried a lot of us with her. Um, in my case, it wasn't to the field. It was to the laboratory. But it was um, – she, she had this ability to energize other people and get mm-hmm. them involved. And that became uh, – each year it broadened and it broadened to gro- uh, broader groups of people literally across the world who were in the field investigating these questions. But what Lynn had this ability to do was, was to synthesize. And some of that just came from just an incredible uh, stubbornness <laughs> and a sense of organization that she wanted to say, okay, well, these are complex situations. That's the real world. But what can we pull out of these complex situations that we can start to understand why things aren't working or why they are, are working? Mm-hmm. And, uh, let me give the phone numbers again because people may want to join us and with their thoughts about uh, Lynn Ostrom, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington calling area. And if you're listening uh, on the web from around the world, you can get to us, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And I, I don't say that lightly because I know that she had an international following, and we believe that we probably have a little bit more of an international following than than normal today. And, and I would really recommend people uh, go to our webpage, uh, indianapublicmedia.org slash noon edition. There are a lot of great comments coming in via Twitter. Um, many people are posting articles uh, that you can go to. So uh, this is actually an extra good resource uh, today compared to some of the other shows we've done. We've got so many interested people uh, posting really great things. Jimmy, you might be able to address this. Uh, the idea that maybe uh, even at Indiana University, uh, Lynn wasn't quite as appreciated as she might have been before she won the prize. And there's an example that uh, someone has passed to me that there was perhaps a leak in her building for about 30 years, and it was fixed <laughs> the week after she won the Nobel Prize. So. Well, that's probably true. The, 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 uh, uh, the workshop definitely, uh, a lot of things started happening after the fact. That's, that's for sure. Uh, it's a tough one. Why does recognition uh, maybe it's the world of social sciences to some extent that maybe it's it's you're not doing organic chemistry or you're not doing physics or medicine and it just it's not quite out there as much you know in a sense I think she was appreciated by uh, the international community maybe more so in early on than than in the u s and this comes back I think the you know the Swedish academy was they were they were investigating what she was doing for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe they, had, they knew the word, but the rest didn't. I don't know. Well, here in a small town in southern Indiana, it's, it's easy to forget that there are other people. Well, I think the other aspect of this, too, was that um, Lynn was always at home in interdisciplinary work. So she was never a mainstream political scientist or economist or mm-hmm. public policy scholar. Uh, right from the beginning... Uh, just in the name of the workshop of political theory right. and policy analysis, you know, they believe those things had to be integrated. You couldn't really have one being successful without the other. And so her reputation really crossed disciplinary lines very quickly. And her career was that way, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the kind of research methodologies, for example, that she engaged in, uh, she was never committed to any one way of doing a social science research. She was, you know, she was happy to, if it turned out that the laboratory was the right thing, then she became, you know, quite adept at experimental work. Uh, she did a lot of field work, which in economics and even in political science has done very little. Uh, mm-hmm. She was much closer to anthropology in that regard. Mm-hmm. But she believed in field work in a very uh, great way. And statistical work, she became interested. And uh, she did take an interest uh, informal mathematical work. She was never her expertise, but when she came here, um, she had never had uh, really much background in mathematics. She'd learned some statistics at UCLA for graduate work. But when she came here early on, she began to see that the discipline of political science was going to be moving more and more into formal mathematical work. And she set herself to learn calculus. She sat in on... uh, uh, Mort Lohengrub's introductory calculus course in the math department to learn calculus because she, you know, deemed it, it would be important somehow in her future work. And, in, and indeed, she, you know, became, um, you know, uh, a competent in that area, too. So in her methodology, just like her substantive interests, really, they crossed disciplinary lines. And in a way, 
Of course, that gave her a much broader appeal. Mm -hmm. But in any Mm -hmm. single discipline, she probably wasn't as well known early on as she should have been. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, we touched on this or or hinted around about it a little bit earlier, but how did things change for the workshop and um, uh, for those of you who worked with her uh, post-Nobel Prize as opposed to pre I mean, she got a whole lot busier. <laughs> I remember there was one time, I think I, I emailed her about, about a meeting, and she had an automatic reply in her email for a while. And it was something like, oh, I, I'm appreciative of your email, but I, I'm, I'm not taking speaking engagements. And it was something crazy for another two years or something because her schedule was that booked up. Wow. And, and I was, huh. But then, of course, a couple hours later, her, her assistant emailed me. and was like, no, Lynn can meet with you tomorrow. Aww. So uh-huh. I, and on the one hand, she, she got a lot busier. She had a lot more commitments. But on the other hand, she still made time, like she always did for the people who are her colleagues at the workshop, the people that she was mentoring and the people she was working with. Can, can you explain the, just the name workshop? Because that, that to me, as an outsider, seems like a, an interesting yeah. name for what this actually is. I can yeah. – it, it actually um, – it comes out of the experiences of Vincent and Lynn. And in some ways, to know Lynn, you really have to know Vincent because he had, he had this major impact on her, particularly early in her career. And uh, really, and I think in, in terms of even how she thought about problems and how she went about investigating those problems. And it's no question of, uh, in her book, Governing the Commons, which, which really is the foundation for the, winning the prize, she dedicated the book to Vincent, and it goes something like, uh, for his love and his contestation. It, they really had this mutual relationship that they were, um, they were always moving together. Their focus primarily was very different, but they were always back and forth. But earlier in, early in their, um, I'm not sure quite how early, but they had built this house in Bloomington, and they got to know Paul Goodman uh, out on... 45, I think, uh, in, the, in his workshop out there. And Paul must have had this sort of, he started this idea that he would have people come in and who wanted to learn about woodworking and do woodworking. And, and Vincent grew up in a farm in Washington, and this was exciting. So they both got involved. And this, this became this idea of an apprenticeship and the idea of being in a workshop and learning how to work, learning how to do research in a workshop. Uh, and I, I think it was Vincent who probably... Um, did not want to use the the uh, the term the standard terminology, which is a research institute. Mm-hmm. They really thought of it as this is a place that that they could working with their colleagues, they could have a workshop where they they built on each other's skills. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it became the workshop in political theory and policy analysis. Yeah. Can we follow up a little bit more with the changes post no. uh, award? I th- I it, thought you guys might have something to say about we, that. I, I didn't think there were all that many changes, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lynn was always terribly busy before that uh, in terms of, you know, she wanted to bring the workshop approach to the world. And she always did a lot of traveling. But now her schedule became even more impossible after that. And she had a lot more demands on her time. Mm -hmm. But as a person, I don't think she changed one iota. She was still uh, generous, kind, thoughtful, uh, you know, always uh, thinking of, the other person always, you know, working with graduate students. And um, I remember immediately after she got the prize, um, Travis Smiley was here. Mm-hmm. He'd taken a course with them as an undergraduate. And when he came back to speak, he met with Lynn. And he told Lynn that, you know, Lynn, you now have this Nobel Prize. And you'll be able to, you know, you'll be a sought-after speaker. You can, you know, charge five, ten, fifteen, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 for you don't need to, you know, she she took all the speaking engagements for free, you know, mm-hmm. most of them, most of them for free. And um, she kind of thought about that and said, well, yeah, I could, but I've already made commitments to these people over the next two years. And she wasn't about to change that at all. Mm-hmm. So uh, even though she was in a great deal more demand, she kept to the same, you know, commitments she had made before. And mm-hmm. fundamentally, I don't think it changed her very much at all. That's great integrity. What about, Jimmy, did you see, were there additional resources aside from this pipe being fixed promptly? (laughs) No, the the university clearly uh, came in, invested in in the building itself. And and there's actually, the workshop is uh, primarily 513 North Park, but there are two houses on the north side and one house on the south side that are used by graduate students and visitors who come in. 
And I think all of those, uh, the workshop itself, that building, uh, there was a lot of renovation, uh, in particular the downstairs, which is sort of the the public area and the seminar room. Uh, it was in real need of, of help. And so they, they really remodeled that along with uh, doing a lot of work on air conditioning and heating and things of that nature. In many ways, though, uh, Lynn, Lynn wanted that sort of thing, but she also resisted the change because the workshop, um, we would talk about sort of it, the workshop being like a family, and she sort of, she didn't want it to be really fancy. And mm-hmm. She wanted to keep it as, as simple as, as possible. So, but no, it, it's, it's very nice. And the houses next, they've paint, been painted. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very nice facility. Um, but yeah, Lynn herself, she was always busy. And um, when you're already working 16 hours a day, it's difficult to work many more hours <laughs> a day. So something had to give somewhere. She definitely traveled more. Uh, it was a little harder to get in to see her. But I actually met with an undergraduate yesterday who had been in one of my honors classes, and he had, he had picked up on reading some of Lynn's work. And he told me just a few weeks ago he had a meeting with her, and he couldn't believe that she could make time to meet with him. And that's the way she was. She was uh, incredibly giving and, uh, I guess, responsible. She felt this responsibility to those who were interested in the, the kinds of problems that she was interested mm-hmm. in. She was, mm-hmm. was going to be there as much as she could be. Gwen, what did you learn from her in terms of being a mentor to you? I mean, you you worked with her very closely, I assume. Oh, there's so many things. I I mean, if I try to pick just one, and this goes along with the idea of a, of a workshop, it's this notion that you're not going to sit down one day and and write this brilliant piece of work. It, it just doesn't. It our our jobs don't work that way. You know, you're you're going to work and you're going to work and you're going to work, and, and eventually you'll you'll get to something and you'll get to you'll get to a finding that is interesting and useful, and then you'll build upon that and then you'll build upon that. But it, it's never going to be simple. So so you have to enjoy doing the work and being persistent. And so I guess what what has been referred to as Lynn's stubbornness. I don't mind that since I'm a little bit stubborn too, but, but I, I think that that was one of the biggest lessons. Like, this is work, and you have to love this work because you're just going to keep pushing at it to, to figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. So with, at, when you came as a student and first met with her, did she have uh, – you know, was there a style that you um, sort of got to know and got to understand and said, okay, this is, this is a unique individual. She's got her own style, and, and I like it, or I – I just need to learn to work work with it. Whatever. Yes, I mean, <laughs> it's it's funny because because you you think that I, when I came, I didn't realize that Lynn was this very important person in in so many different circles. I just knew that I wanted to work with her, and when I started to work with her, I it still didn't quite click with me because you know I. I just remember one meeting where I was covered in mosquito bites. So the mosquitoes were way worse here than where, where I had been. And she spent a good five minutes giving me advice about, about aloe and different things that I should use. So, I, I mean, she was just such a wonderful person to work with at, as a person. And, and, yes, she cared a great deal about my scholarship, and she would recommend things that I ought to read. And, and she would support me if I say, you know, I want to go get this funding or that funding. And she said, I think you should take this class, that class. Of course she would do all of those things. Mm-hmm. But she also cared about me as a human being. And, and for me, that, that made all the difference because I, I, I'm, I'm a whole person, and she saw me as a whole person. And that was really valuable in terms of my interactions with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a great quote. Yeah. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to have a couple of things. One, we have a clip from uh, her Nobel Prize speech, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of how her you know, theories and how her work really comes down to individuals and individual actions. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So we're talking about Len Ostrom today. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. 
And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. We have three guests today talking with us about Eleanor Ostrom. Uh, we have Gwen Arnold, a public policy Ph.D. candidate and a student in the Ostrom Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis. Ted Carmines, the Warner O. Chapman Professor and Rudy Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. And Jimmy Walker, Professor of Economics and Affiliated Faculty of the Ostrom Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis. If you want to join us for the second half of the program, Please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. The web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And uh, we'll, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, about some of how her economic research, her theories, sort of really did come down to individuals and individual actions. Uh, we have a little sample from her speech, and I think it will give you a little bit of a sense of, uh, of this. So. So now let's just turn quickly to the idea of uh, reform and um, how does all this affect um, the uh, let's do better policy. And I think the important thing is that, again, I go back that users who have good fishery, lakes, inshore fisheries, water systems, forests, biodiverse pastures, et cetera, or other, other resources, um, have long-term interests, and they invest in monitoring, and they trust one another. Many policy analysts and public officials have not absorbed this central message yet. That's why I keep stressing it. <laughs> uh, we've looked at a lot of government-protected areas and private ownership. There are some of those that work well but not uniformly. And so posing it as the way, as some uh, scholars have, is just not appropriate. Another key lesson is that we must learn how to deal with complexity, not just reject it. And all of this over time has dealt with the notion of polycentricity and We need small, medium, larger, larger, global. We need all of those levels. Uh, But how we structure them can be quite different. And so let's not accept panaceas. All right, that you guys, I'm sure, have recognized a lot of that. It probably took you back. Uh, You know, to me, a lot of what she said there is that you know. that speaks to me about the politics of today. You know, people who will rec- who will say, "Well, here's our way to do it. This is the one way we need to do it." And and they people do talk about panaceas. We're going to get here, but but I believe that that Lynn Ostrom talked often about individual actions being something that really is necessary and the only way we're going to solve a lot of our complex problems. Ted, well, I, I, and not just individuals, although that was key for them but also small groups and local entities. Um, You know, she recognized that there were some problems that took larger entities, Mm -hmm. you know, national and state governments, international, you know, organizations to some extent. But she always put a lot of emphasis on the local situation. What What was actually going on in that situation? What were the interests of the people? What was the you know, incentives that they had, what was the, what was exactly what they had to deal with, and what could they come up with in terms of a self-organizing solution, because she thought that was the key. And that's part of the reason she, uh, an experimental work, that she found a lot of insights from experimental work that could be applied, because she saw that when you had people that in face-to-face settings, 
that often what was key was trust. If they could build up a level of trust, then they could often control their common pool resource in a way that just wasn't possible. Uh, they would cheat otherwise, you know, if they thought they could go undetected. Sure. So she put a lot of emphasis, and it was uh, unusual at the time, because she really thought that ordinary people had a lot of capacity to deal with their common pool resources if they could come together and really focus on what was at stake for them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the folks who's uh, written in today via Twitter brings up uh, the role that feminism played in the development of her thinking. And I wonder, Jimmy, if you'd like to comment on that. That's probably something that over 25 years you watched un- you know, develop, and-, and I'd like to hear more about that. Wow. You should ask Gwen. You know, I... I when I was working with Lynn, it, it, this was just we were colleagues, and we we really didn't discuss these things. Clearly, she has um, she has raised the issue, especially I think after the the Nobel Prize, that um, the world has changed dramatically. I think that's what she was trying to say that the world has changed dramatically in the last thirty five years, in the sense that in the in the in the role that women play and the opportunities that are there for for, for women. And I think that um, at some level she's arguing this, whether it's the smallest vi- villages in Nepal or whether it's in Bloomington or whether it's in New York City or in, in London, that with the world is changing along those lines and, and the I, I you know, I'm 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 searching here a little bit, but I, I it, I don't think this was a, a big agenda item for Lynn because she was – she and Vincent were equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the workshop, we're all equal in some sense, and that's, that's the way it was. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, she was the first uh, woman who was the chair of our department. Uh, she was the first woman who was the president of the American Political Science Association. She was the first woman and the only woman yet to win a Nobel Prize in economics. She was first in many of those cases, but – you know, it was really never attributed to the fact that she was a woman. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the thing. And while she had a great, I mean, for uh, she was very sympathetic, for example, when she was chair and all through the time she was in the department. And I, I was with her for 37 years there. She was always concerned about the women faculty members and the particular burden that fa- women faculty members and women graduate students and undergraduates had to deal with. It was never formed an excuse for her. You know, she always thought it was possible uh, to find ways, you know, this emphasis on solutions. You know, there was always a way to find a way to overcome any obstacles that you had. And she never um, – that was just not a, a singular focus of hers, even mm-hmm. though she was the first in many of these categories. She didn't think of it that way. And, you know, she, she had – uh, you know, when she came here in 1965, she came because Vincent – uh, her husband, who was 15 years older, was given a professorship here. She had just finished up her degree. And so when she showed up in Bloomington, uh, there was no women, no women on the faculty in political science. She was giving a visitor, a visiting assistant professor, because they needed somebody to teach the 730 American government course on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturday mornings. And so <laughs> she jumped in and did that for the year. And then the next year, they needed a director of graduate studies. And that was during the Vietnam conflict. There was tons of applicants. And we had uh, entering classes of 40 or 50 graduate students at the time. And it was a horrendous job. None of the regular faculty wanted to take it. And so they said, well, Lynn, uh, you did such a good job teaching last semester, last year. Why don't you do it? And she said, well, you know, wouldn't it be a little odd if if your director of graduate studies is a visiting assistant professor? And that's how she got put on the tenure track. They said, no. well, you're right. You should, we should put, make you uh, undo your visiting status and put you as a regular assistant professor. But in her second year here, she was doing that. So she had, a, you know, she knew what it was like. Uh, to be a young female faculty member, even in some cases it was more difficult having, you know, a senior um, spouse uh, with all the, you know, uh, issues that can raise. But uh, she just went about her business and kept her research agenda. And before you know it, she was uh, a full professor and 
on to greater heights since. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about Lynn Ostrom today, who uh, Lynn died earlier this week. She's a longtime Indiana University professor. She won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2009, and we'd like to have your comments and your questions about her. Um, you can call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. The web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. You know, I got to see her. I didn't know her before any of this. And I got to see her two or three times. She came on our show. And we had, uh, you know, so I, I don't know her anywhere near as well as all of you did. But what one thing that struck me, um, and you can tell me if this is the real Lynn Ostrom, is that she, her, while her research is so celebrated, that her theories and her concepts really, to me, seem fairly simple. And that is, I mean, from the standpoint of everybody can do something. And you don't have to wait. Don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. Everybody needs to figure out how they can get involved and do something. I mean, she talked about this one time when I was listening to her about um, the environment. I mean, if you sit around and, and try to think about somebody else solving the environmental issues, you're going to be waiting an awfully long time. Yet she talked about how everybody can do something. It's like that's that's really kind of a simple perspective, and I don't mean that in a bad way, mm-hmm. but something that everybody can do. It's, it's, it's really very uh, uh, enlightening in a lot of ways, I guess. So, no, I, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, she really focused on problems that people just recognize are real problems, you know, how to deal with – forests that uh, might not be there if people are just allowed to do anything they want. On the other hand, trying to impose a rule that will always work with all forests weren't gonna, weren't gonna, was not going to work either. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, all the problems she dealt with are readily understandable from the first things they did. You know, when I came here in 1975, the, one of the first things they would do in the workshop, which had been established in 73, was working on policing Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Lynn found herself in the back of police cars in her field work and with others at the workshop studying how, what size, one of the questions was what size police departments are most efficient. And her her conclusion of the workshop, which was counterintuitive at the time, is that she never found a large police department that outperformed smaller overlapping police departments. And that was really new and, and unorthodox for a finding at the time. But really, when you thought about she really dealt with problems that almost anyone could recognize were real policy problems. And in many ways, um, she didn't have any grand solution to them. You know, it was all incremental. It was all combination of things about the market and things about government, but lots of things in between. And so, you know, in many ways, her solutions, they were always partial, always indeterminate, always subject to uh, change and so forth. And that's just the ways that her mind worked in terms of how you had to deal with these very complex policy problems that, uh, you know, we face throughout uh, the world. Gwen? Well, I mean, and that, if you think about it, that makes... What Ted is saying, that just makes sense, right? Uh-huh. Because peop- communities are different. People are different. So, so you, can't, you can't offer them a solution on a platter and, and imagine that it's just going to work for them. That the, you have to have these, these partial solutions that, that are malleable because they have to be able to, to adapt them to their, their specific needs and, and the priorities of their community. And that was something that, that she recognized, that she understood. Mm-hmm. And so... It's just a, it's just a very practical perspective. So yes, we're we're academics, and and yes, our work is rooted in theory. But that doesn't mean that you're sitting in some the very highest part of an ivory tower and and not thinking about what does this journal article actually mean for someone who who wants to have a responsive police department. It means that you are actually riding alongside a cop and seeing where he goes to get donuts and seeing how long <laughs> it takes from him you know, to get a call to actually get to the place where he needs to respond. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- it's very practical stuff that she worked on that that we all work on and and for me that's great because yeah. i i want to make the world a better place i think most of the people at the workshop do that's why they come there and and it's just this community of people who want to address difficult but very real problems and and figure out a set of solutions that that can be adapted and manipulated such that they can work sometimes, and then you can work your way towards other solutions sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my use of the term "simple" was probably not the best one. I think "understandable" and uh, "practical" are mm-hmm. better better terms. Certainly, I, I think um, 
years down the road, people are going to look back. And I, I think in some sense they're going to see two broad major contributions that Lynn made. One is um, it has to do with um, – so you do have this variety of situations in, in these complex common pool resource situations. But how do you go about investigating them? There are these complex interrelationships, and how do you go actually about studying them to even think about what's going on? And so a lot of the work that she was doing and others at the workshop had to do with how do you structurally develop a framework that you can start to think about analytically? How does this fit into this and this fit into this? And this is where collective action comes in. And what's the role of developing new institutions and the role of the individuals and groups in that process? Mm-hmm. I think the other thing, and this is the start of well, – not the start, but uh, governing the commons was very much about um, you have these diverse settings, and some seem to be working well and some don't. So it's not just that the individuals are working along, but what are these individuals doing uh, and, and what – she often talked about the shadow of the law. How are they – if they need to, how do they take advantage of the law? In those cases in which they're successful, how do they go about what are the conditions under which they succeed and these others fail? And I think that's actually the major contribution. It's starting to develop a set of principles about what helps to make things work and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very – very nicely put summary of kind of her uh, big picture contribution, her legacy, if you will. Um, And I'd like you you two to consider this too as Jimmy answers a a little – a question a little closer to home. What is her legacy going to be to you personally? Her friendship. <laughs> I mean, really, deep down, um, it was wonderful working together. We, uh, we worked primarily with uh, our colleague, Roy Gardner, and um, those early years, and I was developing as a, a young assistant professor, and it was a wonderful experience to work with both of them. And then Lynn and I, especially over the years, it really developed. It was, it was a friendship, and I, that's what I'll look back on. Um, I, think it's, uh, I think it's Provost uh, Lauren Rebell in the, mm-hmm. had made this comment that Indiana University is going to be very different without her. And I hadn't thought of it that way. And I think that's going to be the very difficult thing mm-hmm. is to not see her at the workshop. Mm-hmm. So. I, w- I want to follow up on that because you went with her when she – when she was awarded the right. prize. So what was that experience like? And was she, I mean, for, for her, too, to be in the center of this whirlwind, was was she, you know, in awe in any way, or was she just, it was just Lynn? No, I, she wasn't in awe. Actually, unfortunately, <laughs> Lynn was not feeling the greatest when she got there. So right. and, it's, and it's just a whirlwind. It is a whirlwind. But, you know, I think in the end, what happened there uh, was the, the the people there saw in Lynn what we saw? She was Lynn. I mean, she put in no airs. She was she was just herself. And the impression of talking to people there, I think, sort of they started uh, they started feeling these same feelings and seeing this same person. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was she handled these pretty. Uh, I think of them as pretty tough situations. She could just. She's used to doing it, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. Before we move on to the YouTube, I do want to say that on the Herald Times website, we have a link to – we have a, a video of her speech um, at when she accepted the – or it was before she accepted the award. But it was the speech she gave. It's like 28 minutes long. And yeah, I think it, anybody that wants to go look at it, it'll it'll show you that this practical – person who's talking in this amazing arena, but everything she says is understandable, practical, down-to-earth, and really interesting. So, Ted? Yeah, no, I think that's that's right. I mean, I think about um, she was a, a very generous person. Uh, I mean, she was interested in what you were doing. I was never, I was never a workshopper as such, but I was a colleague for over three decades, and she was, we always shared things that we, in terms of our work and and uh, just a friendship, as Jimmy said. And she was just a, a, a terribly generous person. I remember when she was chair of the department, for example, and we had a situation where the, at one point the faculty were, were going to get a small raise, but the staff wasn't. Uh, and uh, so Lynn managed to talk the dean into taking her a salary increase and splitting it up amongst the, the staff. Uh, I mean, that just an example yeah. of her generosity. She... When she was um, – because she was both 
with the workshop and with the chair. She had very little teaching, in fact, almost none that she was required to do, but she felt she should do some teaching, uh, but she wanted to hang on to the courses that were owed her, but she didn't use them for herself. She would give them to the young faculty who were coming up for tenure, because at the time, we now have a system where they get a semester um, in the third or fourth year to prepare a stronger case. But at that time, we didn't, and she thought it was very important that they have that opportunity that they could focus on their research. So she took her own courses that she could have used in the future and distributed them to the uh, young, untenured faculty. As they, mm-hmm. That's just, you know, just a couple of examples of this generous spirit she had, you know, and um, that also came in terms of the dealings at the workshop. There were few things that w- would get Lynn upset, but one of the things that would get her upset is if you didn't respect the staff. Yes. She was someone who thought the staff was there as an equal partner in terms of what the work not just the graduate students, but the staff, the clerical staff. And they always brought them into all their research projects. They were full participants in what they did. And she would get very irritated on who the faculty member was or visitor if they didn't respect the staff. And she always did. So um, it just, you know, status didn't mean a thing to her. Everyone was treated the same. Everyone had something to contribute. Everyone should be appreciated. And that, that guided how they not only did their research, but how they ran the workshop as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. For me, if the legacy that, that Lynn will have in my life is just how, how lucky I was to have her as a role model and a mentor. My scholarship, I mean, I came and, and I didn't know what, what this business was that I was getting into. I just knew mm-hmm. that I, I was interested in in lakes and I liked to read and I liked to do re- But the kind of scholar that I am today, the way I think about problems, the way I think about solutions, the way I do research, the way the kinds of methodologies I might use or learn about – all of that has been shaped by Lynn. I, I mean, as, as we sit here and talk about, about Lynn, I see all the echoes in, in the kind of scholar that I've become. But more than that, and, and this, this echoes what Ted and Jimmy have been saying, Lynn showed me how I want to be as a person as I have this career because, because she was so kind and so respectful of everyone and, and because she took the time for her students and for her colleagues to to sit and work with them and listen to their ideas and, and the problems that they were having. I want to do that. That's the kind of person that I want to be. Mm-hmm. So she was a personal and a professional mentor, and I will always be grateful for that. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. Well, there have been so many nice things that have um, come in online uh, via Twitter. I would highly, again, recommend that you uh, go to indianapublicmedia.org slash noon edition. And not everything is in English, I should <laughs> add, again, uh, pointing to her global uh, influence. But one of the nicest comments um, that I can read uh, pretty much all of, uh, as opposed to some of them that we you know, need to get into further, but it says, uh, if they'd given her the Nobel 20 years earlier, we might not be in global economic crisis now. <laughs> <laughs> that could very well be true. Yeah. We have about five minutes to go. So if somebody wants to call in, you still have a few minutes, 855-0811-877-285-9348. The web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition or indianapublicmedia.org Right. We've got some more, some more comments. Sustainability uh, must form the bedrock of national economies and constitute the fabric of our societies. Wisdom never dies. That's the tagline on that. That was a quote. Um, also, uh, better than free markets or government control, that's people managing common resource. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, obviously, uh, many, many people, former students, former colleagues, uh, people who have uh, read her work and, and had uh, been profoundly influenced by her, uh, again, more than we can get on the air today. Well, a couple things that are, are really relevant to, to Bloomington and Indiana. One is she, she showed up a couple, few weeks ago at uh, an event downtown uh, at the Showers Complex in which uh, new solar panels were being put up. And she talked about uh, how – you know, she was very proud of her community for doing this. And she said, at the time, if, if I bring – when I bring visitors to town, I'm going to bring them down here and say, my town did this and show them those panels. And 
also, I, I, you know, we've uh, – I know we at the newspaper have written an awful lot about townships and township trustees and township government. And you all have heard about the, the Kernan Shepherd Report, which <laughs> mm-hmm. wants to reorganize right. how government is done. And, and uh, Lynn Ostrom would have, was definitely against the notion of doing away with townships because it is closer to the people. And the townships the, – the more – Townships, the complexity of uh, that system and the overlapping um, responses or responses that people might have was was better for her. Uh, she said on a number of occasions than having a central authority that would would come down. So, those are a couple of local examples. Uh, one word I want to go back to is trust, because I know I think it, again it was in. I watched a couple things online, and mm-hmm. I think it was in the the speech or at the press conference where. The uh, award was uh, after the award was announced. She said that you know trust was the one word that she would repeat over and over and over again because that is so important. And I, I'd like for all of you to address that. Well, well I, go ahead. Tim. Yeah, I think you know that's what I think she found out that that most of the common pool resource uh, situations that could work well were when local people in or self-organizing themselves had trust in each other. You know, that, that, that became key to the separating out the successful from the unsuccessful management, self-management of these resources. And so I think that's something she learned in probably the laboratory working with Jimmy and some of his colleagues, mm-hmm. is that this face-to-face building up of trust was quite important in terms of having these kind of partial, incomplete solutions to these uh, problems that uh, we all face. That seems relevant to our political situation today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> political and markets. Uh, I, I, I may not have the person, or I don't know if it was Kenneth Arrow or, or, or I'm not sure who, but, but there is this discussion in economics about the incredible importance of trust in relationships. Markets don't work without trust. They don't work well, I would say. And um, so I think Lynn saw this this aspect of human nature as being fundamental, whether you were talking about markets, whether you're talking about commons, or whether you're talking about political processes. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I, I would add to that reciprocity, mm-hmm. which they tend to go together. Those are sort of the mm-hmm. two uh, two key issues that individuals and groups have to overcome. Mm-hmm. To, to make things work. Quinn, 30 seconds? I don't think yeah. I can put it any better than that. <laughs> okay. All right. We are out of time. I, I want to thank all of you, Gwen Arnold, Ted Carmines, and Jimmy Walker, for being here and sharing your memories and thoughts about Lynn Ostrom. Um, it's, uh, it's really sad to think that she's gone, but uh, she has left quite a legacy, and you three are part of it, I'm sure. So uh, I want to thank Mary Catherine for being here. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producers Gretchen Frazee and Julie Raw, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933, online at mypremierortho.com.